How many today have felt like it was a long day? Hands up. Yeah, honestly? How many felt like the day went quickly? Oh, a lot of about equal <laughs> long and slow and <laughs> and a bunch that are neither nor. <laughs> It's interesting, the perception of time. <coughs> when I think back to um, Friday evening, to me it feels like a long time ago. It feels like a lot has taken place. A lot of changes have taken place in many ways since Friday evening. And then I was um, just reflecting before, just the thought was coming that um, sometime during the night tonight we'll pass the halfway mark on the retreat. And when I think, wow, halfway through already. It doesn't feel like such a long time. It feels like, oh, it's going very quickly. And and this, um, this sense of going quickly, it um, just um, gives me a sense that it really is a, a rather short retreat. Most of the retreats I teach are a week long. And, and it's amazing how the, 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 two, the two extra days makes such a huge difference in the perception of time. And one, one way that it, that it makes a difference, um, and, it's, and it's tied in with, with perception, um, uh, sometimes, and, and, and this evening is one of, the, one of these times, it feels like because it's such a short retreat, and, and basically I get two talks to say what I want to say, it feels like there's, there's a lot I want to say that's really important to say. A lot of aspects of the Dharma that I, I really want to address. But then on the other hand, there's the thought, you know, there isn't really a lot to say that's really important to say. <laughs> What's most important is what comes from within each one of us and what, what, and our own insights, and what we're learning for ourselves, what we're coming to see for ourselves. That's, what, that's far more important than any words that someone else says. So I go back and forth between the two. <laughs> So tonight I'd like to offer some words um, with the hope that it can be, there can be some, some pointers, some direction, some, some guidance, and perhaps some clarification of some of the insights you've had, some of the experiences you've had. <clears throat> and, um, and as I said, there, there's, a, there's a lot of themes that I'd like, I'd like to touch on, and I'm not sure which of them I'm actually going to get to and how they're going to fit together. Um, but basically, the theme that I want to speak about is dukkha and the ending of dukkha, which allows me to talk about almost anything. <laughs> the, the Dalai Lama very often begins a public talk with the statement, everyone wants to be happy. And he, um, 
and and he takes this point as being a, a main a major point that links us all that connects us all we all want that same thing we all want to be happy and 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 i always find it interesting when when i ask people i like to ask people why have you come on retreat why are you interested in meditation and almost invariably the response is some variation of either i want to be happy or i want to find peace so how many would say that that's your reason some 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 variation on that theme yeah almost almost everyone occasionally someone comes along and says i'm just curious and that is great <laughs> i think that's great nothing being looked for nothing being sought after just curious to see to see what is and that's really what the practice is it's being curious to see what is and to open to what is and to allow allow for what is and um the difficulty with it often ends up being that what is and what shows is dukkha. And I'd like to um, like to start now by reading the Buddha's description of dukkha. And I'll just read through this, and then I want to. I'll come back to this a little bit later, as I'm speaking. The Buddha said, "Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Illness is dukkha." Death is dukkha. I should have this memorized by now. (laughs) Union with what is displeasing is dukkha. Separation from what is pleasing is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. In brief, this is a very curious statement here, In brief, the five aggregates fueled by clinging are dukkha. And this last statement is a summary of all the other dukkhas. And and this is particularly the statement I want to come back to later. So birth, aging, illness, death, union with what is displeasing, separation from what is pleasing, not to get what one wants. All of these are dukkha. Is there anyone here who hasn't experienced at least one of these sometime today? <laughs> so this is this is this is dukkha, and um, and this this statement and, and, and the some of you are familiar. I might just bring in here the the Buddha the Buddha summed up his um, his his insights and his teachings in four statements, and. Um, and I'll see if I get through the four statements this evening. Anyway, the first statement is simply, very simply, very obviously, there is dukkha. It's just pointing out the, the actuality of our lives, that in our lives there is dukkha. He doesn't say, as is often translated, life is dukkha. He's just pointing out there is dukkha. And, and I, think, um, I think more than just pointing it out, He's, he's pointing it out for a reason. And, and the reason he's pointing it out is because he's, he's inviting us or possibly challenging us to meet the dukkha, 
to really take in, yes, there is dukkha, and here it is. And and to and to to open to that, to allow for it, and and to 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 be with it, and to to explore it. So for the for the Buddha, his whole the 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 the, the prime intention of his spiritual quest was to know the end of dukkha. And I think this is kind of the opposite side of the coin of saying everybody wants happiness. The Dalai Lama says everyone wants happiness and the Buddha says nobody wants to have dukkha. <laughs> so he's he's pointing out, he's pointing out that there is dukkha and he's and he's asking us, he's asking us to give attention to dukkha, to, to come to understand it so that we can end it. And without that understanding, without that understanding, how can we end it? So this statement that everyone wants happiness, it's really, as I say, it's the other side of the coin of the same statement. It's saying the same thing, essentially. But when we frame it that way, everyone wants happiness, it... Um, it, 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 it gives a sense of happiness being something to get. And then the question comes, how do I get it? By framing it as nobody wants to experience dukkha, it's about ending or removing the dukkha. You see the difference there? So in one there's getting, and in one there's just removing and in the removing, allowing for something else. Happiness. So, so come on retreat, and I come on retreat with this intention, or I come to meditation with this intention, I want to find happiness. I want to find peace. And, and the fact that we've come on retreat, and that we've come to meditation, to me shows a considerable degree of understanding is already present. A considerable degree of of wisdom is already present. And the, the understanding or the wisdom that's already present to some degree is a certain degree of understanding that happiness, that the ending of dukkha is not out there. Otherwise, why would be why would be we be coming to something that's asking us to look within? And it's it's very sad how strongly we've been conditioned and how strongly we're enticed and how strongly we're encouraged to believe that we can find happiness out there. We try, or we've tried, and seen through it, seen the, the dukkha in it. We try, or we've tried, to find happiness and to find peace in so many different ways out there. Through jobs, through relationships, through money, through authority, through power, through 
a new car, a new computer, the latest gadgets, um, a new house, moving to a new place, um, going to a different retreat center, uh, just all kinds of ways that we, we look out there for happiness. The right diet, the right exercise. And, and, we, and we reach out to these things, we reach out to these things looking for some satisfaction or expecting to get some satisfaction from them. And from time to time, we do. <laughs> we do get that satisfaction, at least temporarily. And each time we get it, it reinforces the idea. Oh, okay. And then we want more. And the Buddha, the Buddha described this. Um, he he said um, he he said in his first discourse he said these two extremes should not be followed. So two extremes should not be followed. And the first is the pursuit of sensual happiness in sensual pleasures. The pursuit of sensual happiness in sensual pleasures. And, and so much of our pursuit of, of, of happiness is just this. The pursuit of things that will satisfy our senses and give us pleasure through the senses. And, and he says this, this, should not be, this, this should not be followed. This is extreme. And why is that? We all know, because these pleasures don't last. And the things that we get don't last. It's all impermanent. It all, it's all subject to change. And so we, we, we see, we recognize that, that any pleasure, any happiness that these things bring is rather temporary. And, and then the, the, the Buddha makes another statement. He, he talks about how we, how we seek this sensual happiness. And a lo- lovely phrase he is. He says, we seek this out now here, now there. And just that sense of, oh, we go here, go there, here, there. And we're just constantly reaching out, constantly reaching out. So how many times today have you reached out to some visual object for relief, for pleasure? How many times today have you taken an extra spoonful or an extra forkful of food because it's very pleasant, it it tastes so good, it feels so nourishing in the body? How many times today have you read the timetable because it gives a a sense of a, a pleasant sense. There's a, there's a pleasure in in the sense of oh now I know what's what's next. How many times today have we reached out now here, now there? Not to mention reaching out for inner experiences or for insights. Now here, now there. 
So we, 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 we see ourselves, hopefully we, we, are, we see ourselves in this world reaching out this way, grasping at things for happiness. And hopefully by now we've seen at least to some extent, and I think we all have to some extent, we've seen the futility of it. And so we start to look somewhere else. We start to look somewhere else for happiness, for peace. The second, the second statement that the that the Buddha that the Buddha says, that the Buddha said in his in his summary, he said there is a cause for dukkha. There's a cause, and the cause that he identified as craving and clinging. Craving and clinging. When we when we get obsessed with getting something, when we just can't do without it, I just have to have it, and all my energy is going into that craving to get it. And then when I get it, the clinging, the holding on, I want to keep it, I want to keep that. I like that. It's really pleasant really makes me feel good. This craving and clinging, this is the cause that the Buddha identified as dukkha. When we get caught up in the craving and the holding, the attachments, this is where dukkha springs from. Because whatever it is we're craving, whatever it is we're clinging to, it's going to change. And the tighter we cling to it, the more dukkha we're going to experience when it changes. Because we're going to experience separation from what is pleasing. So this, so this, this, this statement, the cause is in the craving and clinging, what it's pointing to is that the the, the, the cause of the dukkha, what's underlying the dukkha, is not so much in the thing itself. It's interesting. We can, we can also see that. We can also see that because we can think, of, I can think of so many things where sometimes, so many objects where sometimes it's quite pleasant for me and other times exactly the same object is quite unpleasant. I think of um, the sunshine, a day like today. You go outside here and you go out and you stand out in the sun and that sun is just so pleasant. It's just so wonderful to stand there under the sun and feel the warmth of it and feel the light from it. And then other times, you you go to somewhere where it's like 40, 45 degrees, uh, full bright sun shining, and you go out in the sun, it's... This sun isn't so great after all. Same, same sun. Different relationship. Different relationship. Different perception. Different way of experiencing it. One pleasant, one unpleasant. So, so we see, we can, we can see that the same object, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant. 
So, so we we see that we see that the pleasure isn't in the object itself. The statement it's it's in the craving and clinging is pointing to it's in the relationship. It's in how we're relating to the object. So we ask. So when we recognize dukkha, we can ask the question: Is what's my relationship here? What am I clinging to? What am I holding on to? Am I holding on to an object, taking it as, hmm, this is good, I want to keep this? Am I holding on to an opinion? I'm right. You're wrong. There's dukkha in that. Am I holding on to an idea? Am I holding on to my job that I absolutely hate? (laughs) Am I holding on to a relationship? Am I holding on to so many things where we experience dukkha and, and this statement is asking us to ask this question. If there's dukkha here, then there's holding somewhere. There's, there's attachment somewhere. What's being held on to? The third statement is that knowing, knowing that that craving and clinging is the cause of dukkha, really deeply knowing that and getting that, if there's any awareness or intelligence at all, (laughs) the insight will be, why hold on? (laughs) Why hold on? And the releasing releasing can happen from that understanding of that that relationship so that so the the relationship changes from one of holding to one of not holding and this the, the, this term we 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 often very commonly we use terms like um, like letting go or releasing but actually from the poly the word that's actually used is non-clinging. And sometimes I think it's better to, to use it that way. So, Because when I think of letting go, then the question comes, well, how do I let go? And we make letting go into something to do. Something that I have to do. And there's an assumption that there's a, there's a there's a number of assumptions in there, but one of the assumptions in there is that I have some control over it. I can control it. There's something I can do to make that letting go happen and be happy. I can make myself happy. And when I start to see it in that way, then maybe it's starting to point away from the relationship aspect and bring it back more to here. More internally. So it's not... So, so rather than being about me and my relation to it, it takes the it out of it completely. <laughs> Just take the it out of it. 
and, and bring it back here. And this, um, this statement, the Buddha, when he says, in brief, the five aggregates fueled by clinging are dukkha. So the five aggregates, as, as many of you know, the, the five aggregates are, um, it's a model that the, that the Buddha uses of five components or five aspects which, when put together in a bundle, kind of describe this this being, this me. And so, so what the five are is um, one is the body and the other four are different aspects of mind. So the five aggregates refers to body-mind. So the Buddha says, in, in brief, so in summary, underlying all these, other, all these other forms of dukkha, underlying all the forms of dukkha is this this self fueled by clinging. This self that's clung to. When I, when I hold on to an identity of who I am, when I hold on to the very perception that this is me, this, this solid thing here, and I was here yesterday, I'm here today, and I'll be here tomorrow, when I hold on to that, this is fueling the dukkha. It's because of, to a very large extent, it's because of the, the holding on to the aggregates, the, the clinging to this, this self, this view of self, this perception of self. It's because of that that I reach out for other things. I reach out for other things to, to authenticate this self, to perpetuate this self, to satisfy this self, to keep this self going, to give it solidity, to give it a sense of, um, a sense of stability, of continuity, of permanence. And so I reach out for things in order to reinforce that sense of, of me. Um, <laughs> so an excerpt from um, from a, a book review. This is a book review of a, a book that's just recently been published. It's called "Who's in Charge?" Who's in charge? And it's um, the subtitle is "Free Will and the Science of the Brain." Some of some of you may know that um, that. A hot topic in scientific research these days is free will. Is there such a thing as free will? Do we really have free will? Do we really have choice? Who's in charge? And so this is an excerpt from this book. It says, um, the brain has no center of control. This is the outcome of lots of scientific research. The brain has no center of control, no center of consciousness, no center, period. <laughs> no self. <laughs> Countless scientific studies of the brain reveal it to be a ragbag collection of specialized modules for everything from facial recognition and counting 
through to distinguishing self from other. So there's all these different modules in the brain that do all these different functions, this ragtag collection of modules. It's quite amazing how these modules make us identify the thoughts and actions of our brain as our own. Even when the cause, even when the cause is known to be external control of our brain via transcranial magnetic stimulation. So studies show that magnetic energy going through the brain, going through the skull, through the cranium, has, has, a, has a, a controlling effect on the brain. This makes it so scary when you think about all these mobile waves and Wi-Fi waves and microwaves and all this stuff that we're being bombarded with all the time. It's quite amazing how these modules, these modules, all doing different things, make us identify the thoughts and actions of our brain as our own, even when the cause is known to be external. It's quite amazing, that is, to think that our sense of self is achieved by some dozens of such modules working in loose formation with one another in the absence of any real self at all. So as many scientists see it, they, you, and I are but the imaginary focuses created by our nervous systems in order to better serve the evolutionary demand of our trillions of component cells to survive and reproduce. Quite something, quite something. (laughs) The scientific research saying there is no self. This sense of self is just all the actions of the brain convincing or making it convincing that there is a self. And 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 what what um, what what really amazes me is not this, but what amazes me is that the Buddha figured all this out twenty five hundred years ago. The Buddha in his exploration in 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 being finished with trying to get satisfaction and happiness and things out there. He grew up in palace with all kinds of luxuries and anything he wanted, he got the best of everything. And he recognized, wait a minute, there's still Dukkha here. So he realized it's not out there. And he realized it's not in relationship. And so he turned within and he looked within and he explored this being. Same way we're doing it. He sat and he breathed and he paid attention to the body. He made, he made a, an amazing statement. He said, within this body is the entire universe. By giving attention to this body is the possibility of knowing the entire universe, of understanding the entire universe. 
and he just paid attention to the body. He rested in the body and he explored and explored and questioned and examined. And he came to these realizations, these insights. And he came to the realization of the nature of things. We've been talking about this, about understanding the nature of things. So he came to the realization, the understanding of the nature of things. And, um, and as Brad spoke about last night, one aspect of the nature of things is the impermanence. The impermanence of things. You just pay attention to the body. And, and as I said this morning, in paying attention to the body, you can't help but notice the mind. And you see how quickly things can change and how often things can change and how unexpectedly things change in the body, in the mind, from moment to moment to moment to moment. The Buddha frequently taught in similes. And, um, and, and he, said, he said, the mind changes so fast I can't find a simile for it. <laughs> From moment to moment to moment, the body-mind is changing. And this is the nature of things. All things change from moment to moment. In the, um, in the categorization of dukkha, um, dukkha is, is, is explained in three categories. And the first category is the dukkha of change. The dukkha that we experience when we face change. Because at some level we don't like change. We like stability. We like continuity. We like a sense of security. And opening to change challenges all that, questions it. And so to open to change really requires a lot of releasing, a lot of letting go, a lot of allowing. And we open to change and we see change happens. How can we hold on to something? And by holding on to it, dukkha. And so the very realization of change is a gateway to liberation to the ending of dukkha. So seeing into the nature of things, change, impermanence. Another characteristic of things, the nature of things, is dukkha. Things have the characteristic, have a characteristic of dukkha in the sense that we can't rely on things for happiness because they're changing. And we can see that. We get something and at first it makes us feel good and we enjoy it and then it starts to deteriorate or gets lost or something and something happens to it or or there's some change in our life and that thing no longer brings the happiness. We can't rely on things because things change. And the more we hold on to something and and depend on it or rely on it, the more dukkha we experience. 
So these three, these three categories of dukkha, the first is the dukkha of change, the second is the dukkha of dukkha. <laughs> it's the dukkha that we experience because of this unreliability of things. And the third characteristic, which is related, which is with this, this statement, is, is very much about the third characteristic of things um, is called in Pali, anatta. Anatta. And anatta translates literally as without self or not self. It's often translated as no self. Not self. And, um, and, and what the Buddha means, I'm going to try and shorten this a little bit. Don't want to go on for too many hours tonight. <laughs> um, what 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 what's meant by anatta? What's meant by not self is not separate self. It's simply saying that self exists dependent on conditions. Who I am, how I am what I am, what I'm thinking, how I'm thinking, who I'm thinking about, all of this happens from moment to moment because of conditions, the conditions in that moment. There's no self controlling it. There's no me controlling it. It's like the brain, all these different components working together and convincing that there's a a me having these thoughts and in me doing these things. It's the same thing. There's all these conditions at work and these conditions manifest a thing, including this thing. So there's no self separate from the conditions. And we can see that we we start to pay attention. We see that when a certain condition of the body shows, I respond in a certain way. When a different condition shows, I respond in another way. When the temperature changes, you know, Brad turns up the thermostat and I'm unzipping my sweater and folding up my shawl. And then... Um, thermostat shuts off and someone opens the window and then I'm zipping up my sweater. I'm changing in response to the conditions, the changing conditions. I hear a sound and in that moment of hearing that sound, that sound is is conditioning who I am in that moment. I eat my lunch and it tastes so good and in that moment of that tasting... That tasting is conditioning who I am. So who I am is not separate from the conditions. And so in that sense, we come to this conclusion, there's no self. The Buddha the Buddha, going back to this, uh, he said that the, um, there are two extremes. The pursuit of sensual happiness in sensual pleasures. And the second is the pursuit of self-mortification. 
And what he means by the pursuit of self-mortification is the, um, is the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of peace through the rejection and the denial of the self. And what very, what very often happens is we start out with this strong sense of self and we're, we do whatever we can to reinforce the self. We get things to build up the self, to make the self more real. We do self-improvement courses. We do meditation to make ourselves more compassionate and more happy and more peaceful. And, uh, and all this building up the self, reinforcing the self... And at some point, hopefully, we see through that. And what happens as the, the tendency of the mind, as the Buddha points out, he says these two extremes. And he says, and he follows this up, he says, what I've found is the middle path that avoids these two extremes. The tendency of mind is to go from one extreme to another. So we see through this extreme, and then we go to the other extreme. Oh, there's no self. There's no self. And, and, and certainly I've heard, and I would guess at least some of you have heard people espousing this. There's no self. And a denial, a denial of the self. A denial that there's a self. But look, here, here it is. Here's how many? 45 of them. <laughs> there's 45 selves here. And, and so the Buddha is saying not to go to either extreme. And what he's saying is, be careful about holding up the self and be careful about holding up no self. And the beauty, the beauty of the insight of anatta is that it accommodates both. Yes, there is this self. There are these aggregates. There are these five aggregates. There is this body-mind. But this body-mind exists only dependent on the conditions. And it's changing from moment to moment to moment. So it's not a question of self or no self. One doesn't contradict the other. One doesn't negate the other. It all depends on how it's understood. And again, it depends on not holding on to self and not holding on to no self. And and, and, and the, the meditation, the meditation practice is very much one, when we're giving attention to the breathing, we're not just giving attention to the breathing we're giving attention to the question of what is it that's breathing? What is this breathing? What is it that's feeling these sensations? And there's a little bit of danger with this because this kind of questioning can easily be based on the assumption that there is a what that's feeling it or a who that's feeling it or a who that's breathing and so the, so the investigation can easily be based on a holding on to self, a looking for self, 
are wanting to find the self who's doing this, who's feeling this, who's thinking this. So this holding on to self. And then we see through that, oh, there's no self. It's just conditions arising, passing, arising, and passing. Just, I, I'm just remembering some other research on free will that, that relates to this. Um, I'm remembering. The memory comes. <laughs> the memory comes. Um, research was done, a research project where um, people were hooked up to brain imaging machines and they were instructed to, um, to make a specific movement. Like they were instructed to um, push a button or to um, scratch their ear or something. Give, give an instruction to do something, a very specific physical movement. And then the scientists watched the brain waves, watched all the, the brain imaging as they were doing it. And what they found was that the, the parts of the brain associated with the specific movements lit up, <laughs> as it were, or were, were at work half a second before any conscious decision to take the action. Half a second before the conscious decision, which also showed up in the brain, the brain had already made the decision. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? And what this is pointing, what, the, what this, uh, what this is pointing to, is complete absence of free will. There's no free will. The the neurology, the wiring has already made the decision before the decision is made. <laughs> then another, another experiment was done, and people, people again were wired up to these brain imaging machines. And, and I think the one reason that this is, there's so much research being done in this now is because they have the tools to, to actually see what's, what's going on in the brain. And um, so another one, people were presented with, with ethical issues and what would you do and again the the brain imaging showed that before the person consciously made a decision what to do the brain had already made the decision so again pointing to the absence of free will but what they also found was that some people were able to change it. Some people were able to say no to the decision the brain had already made and make a different decision. And this showed again in the, in the imaging. And so the, the conclusion was, wonderful conclusion, the conclusion was that there, there is no free will because it's just the neurology making the decision initially. But what they said is, there is free won't. (laughs) There is free won't. There is the power to say no. There is the power to transform the outcome. And I think this very much relates to the meditation practice. 
I think the the meditation and more and more the the studies the studies are showing that an effect of the meditation, an effect of of the mindfulness, effect of the of the insights of the understanding, is the ability to say no. And 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 one area where this this is particularly important and particularly useful is in the whole area of ethics. And I think this is why, I think, the, I think the Buddha knew all this, and I think this is why he put so much emphasis on ethics as a foundation for the path. Where there's a strong ethical foundation, the conditioning is stronger to say no to unethical decisions that the brain, that the neurology may make. So the so the practice the practice in this in this exploration and coming to this understanding of the nature of things is pointing us in the direction of happiness because it's pointing us in the direction of a more ethical life and it's pointing us in the direction of knowing that we're not separate It's pointing us in the direction of knowing connection. And it's pointing us in the direction of knowing connection, not as me connected to you. When the perception is me connected to you, there's still a separation. There's there's a difference. It's pointing us in the direction of intimacy, total intimacy. Not, not oneness, because there are individual personalities, there are individual characteristics and appearances, but it's pointing us to intimacy. And, and through this exploration can come, through this examination of this self, this mind-body, can come this understanding of the nature of things, which brings us to more intimacy with life. More connection. Closer connection. And this brings kindness, compassion, caring. Knowing that that the dukkha of one person is the dukkha of all. And where there's the wish to end dukkha, then it has to be the wish to end dukkha for all. And it's pointing us even further than that. In the in this in this in these three characteristics, in the nature of things, in in the nature of things as being dukkha, one aspect, one characteristic of things is dukkha is this unreliability. And so within all of this, there's still unreliability there's still change happening. And, and so the Buddha, the Buddha points us even beyond, even beyond impermanence, dukkha, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. 
The Buddha points us to that which does not change. That which is not subject to conditions. That which is totally free. Totally free. And this is something that cannot in any way be understood or even imagined by the mind. All these neurons firing off and all these modules of the brain just can't conceive of it. But it can be known. And it's in the knowing of this, in the knowing of the unconditioned, of the knowing of that, the the Buddha referred to it as the undying, the unborn, the unconditioned. In the knowing of this is the knowing of ending of dukkha. Mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of body. We use the body. We use the body as a tool for exploring this self. Not in order to reinforce and build up the self and not in order to get rid of the self. You know, we read about, hear about, maybe talk about, oh, it's about getting rid of the ego. It's not about getting rid of anything. It's about seeing through, seeing through the illusion and releasing the delusion, the belief that the illusion is how it actually is. And knowing the unconditioned. So, may we all come to know Dukkha and the ending of Dukkha. So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.